0: Mimeo Talk of the Trade, sharing marketing and sales success stories.
1: Hey, everyone. Mike McNary here, Welcome you to another episode of Mimeo's Talk of the Trade podcast. This is where you get tips and tricks for how to lead sales teams into success. We've got a great episode for you today, building sales teams in 2022. What to think about going into the year ahead for hiring new talent and retaining it. Our guests, both from Challenger, are Jen Allen, who's a key account executive, large enterprise sales, and Mike Randazzo, senior director, product marketing and enablement. And they're both the co-hosts of Winning the Challenger Sale podcast, one of my favorite pods and a show I highly recommend to our audience. Jen, Mike, it is great to have you today. Welcome to the show.
2: Thanks Thanks for
3: having us. us. For
1: those of us uh, in the audience
3: for Talk of the Trade that might not know Challenger or might not have taken a course of yours, tell us a little bit about your organization.
2: Yeah, so so Challenger, um, maybe a little bit, bit of backstory. I think uh, m- many folks who are listening might be familiar with Challenger the book or the mm-hmm. concept or the idea, but perhaps not familiar with the fact that there is a Challenger the company out there. and. To really boil it down to its essence, the ideas, the frameworks, the insights, the best practices, the strategies first sort of introduced in that book, the challenger sale 10 years ago. um, uh, Allowed us to create this business unit when we were part of a company called CEB, which is now part of Gartner uh, after an acquisition several years ago um, that actually. served as sort of the implementation and consulting arm of, of the business. And what we did was we took those ideas from the Challenger sale and we helped companies across the globe, um, put them into action, uh, implement them across their global sales organizations, and ultimately um, find ways to scale uh, high performance. Three years ago, we spun off from Gartner. Uh, we stood up our own company, Challenger Inc. And uh, here we are today, still working with uh, hundreds of companies across the globe to help them improve seller productivity and performance using challenger strategies. Yeah.
3: You guys are doing a great job of it. I can tell you that I know hundreds of sales professionals that swear by challenger training and uh, challenger best practices. So let me ask you this. Uh, you know, you, you guys are both hosts of the Winning the Challenger Sale podcast. Um, it's pretty acclaimed. I know it has a lot of listeners. I am one of them. Uh, Jen, what's your favorite part about doing the podcast with Mike?
0: Yeah, so my favorite part is Mike does all the work and I just get a shout (laughs) out.
1: Good setup.
0: It's a great question, actually. Yesterday, we were just talking about this. Um, So I am a sales rep for New Logo with the large enterprise segment. And recently I took on um, sort of a player coach role with our team of other sellers. We were all in Chicago yesterday doing a training on storytelling. And one of the things that I've realized across the last few months of doing this podcast with Mike is storytelling is one of those like absolutely underappreciated skills for reps, Agreed. right? And I think by virtue of having to be thoughtful about what you do, why you do it, where you've made mistakes, it actually ends up podcasting is a, a phenomenal tactic for becoming, I think, a better storyteller. And so I think yeah, for me, yeah. that's probably been the the most um exciting part of this is just being very thoughtful about why you do what you do and then having to tell it, I guess, in a compelling way.
3: No, that's a really good point, And I think uh, something that probably most sales professionals don't, don't think about, right, is how important storytelling is. We sometimes think about it from a process standpoint, but, you know, how is it going to be most consumable by our audience? And, right, sometimes a good story is the best way to get across a message. Mike, what, what do you like most about uh, working with Jen and the podcast in general? So, <laughs> Jim, well,
2: Jen and I have been working together for a long time. We've, we've been around the challenger world, the challenger space going back to CEB days for a long time. So like we know the terrain really well. I think what we've found in this podcast is an opportunity to just have a little fun with it and kind of humanize the concept of challenger a little bit, if that makes sense. Yeah. Our, our goal is like, Challenger is, you know, it's admittedly, it's not an easy sales approach to master. It is absolutely the thing people think of when they think of like complex B2B selling. We use this as an opportunity to try to make it super actionable. Um, and I think what has really become a really hectic and chaotic day-to-day for B2B sales professionals around the world, like how do you take the things that are smart and interesting and sound like they'd work really well in a book right? and put that into practice when you're preparing for a discovery call, when you're walking into a negotiation with a procurement leader, like just kind of humanizing B2B selling a little bit. Um, And what's cool about our like little shtick, I guess, is like Jen's been a rock star salesperson for years and now she leads a sales team. And so she's got like the on the ground day-to-day experience implementing Challenger as a sales professional and and as a manager, I lead an enablement team um, and I've led teams in the past. So like we have, the ability to look at a problem from two different angles right and pick it apart and figure out, hey, like here's the typical barrier to adoption, both for an individual trying to do it and a leader trying to like train it, coach it, implement it, breaking it down to its essence and saying, like, why don't you try this instead? And that's been like modernizing the ideas, bringing them into the day-to-day and just having a little fun with it. That's that's kind of what I like about it.
0: I would just add like one of the things, I think there's this misnomer that people are born challengers. You have to you know, go five years of being in sales before you can do challenger. And I always say on the podcast, like I'm absolutely a reformed relationship builder. Challenger was not something that came naturally to me. And I think one of the most important things for Mike and I is to show people like challenger is not this thing you have to like wait until you can master sales at. It's in a right. mindset that you bring, and you have to be intentional about it. But I think what we try to do is show a very honest perspective around, like, look, sometimes you get it right, sometimes you get it wrong. Right. Um, but knowing what to look for, I think, is the key point, and being specific about how do I teach, to Mike's point, in negotiation, or how do I take control in discovery. I think that's where we look to bring the concepts from the book and bridge it with the you know day to day stuff where we as sellers are all doing.
3: Yeah, I've noticed also the the different perspectives that you both bring to it on the show. And I think it is one of the stronger parts about, you know, your relationship, how you complement each other, but also I think how, you know, your show could reach a broadened audience, right? Folks from all different sides of the equation can find really relevant talking points and takeaways from it. So, um, I think you're doing great work. And I encourage the audience to, to go check out the podcast, winning the challenger sale podcast, if anybody in our audience wants to reach out to you about the podcast or about you know, working with Challenger, um, Jen, how would they reach out to you?
0: I, easiest way is LinkedIn. Um, okay. I'm a LinkedIn fanatic. So Mike and I are both on LinkedIn. It's easy to find us. Um, hit us up. Always happy to share.
1: All right. Let's jump into our topic for today. Hiring salespeople in 2022.
3: You know, listen, we all know that many aspects of the work world has been turned upside down, right? Some of it looks like it used to, and some of it looks a lot different. Um, I've been hearing, and, you know, my colleagues have been hearing from other sales leaders that it's harder than ever to hire for their sales team right now. And I wanted to know, does that match up with the trends that you're seeing either, you know, in challenge or in, you know, working with your customers? And let's start with you,
1: Jen.
0: Yeah. So I think um, I'll speak from personal experience. Yeah. Just on our team, we've had two open positions for a large enterprise sales rep for more than six months because it is that hard to find someone who embodies okay. what we you know look for in Challenger. But also I think right now, the talent war is just insane, right? There's so... I've never received... More job offers, and I don't say that to brag. I just say that because, like, it just feels different. I think people have more yes. options. People are more selective. People are really being thoughtful around: does this company represent the values that I'm seeking? Is this a company that's going to say, like, you have to fill out these activity reports and do X number of things? I just think it's, you know, it's it's a seller's market right now, yes. um, and I think that's a great thing for the entire function of sales. Like, I I'm I'm so excited about where I think um sellers are going to push organizations to think differently about what they do but i will say even with clients i mean i work with all sorts of different industries and I'm even starting at the one of the strangest things I heard the other day was I had a, a prospect that came to me and said, "Hey, we're thinking about phasing out sellers by the year 2025 and just replacing them with subject matter experts and trying to get them upskilled on on sales." And so I just think like it's it's a crazy crazy situation now out of like just lack of people to fill seats and people are right. starting to think differently about what are we going to do if we've got a big market to fill and no butts and seats to fill it.
3: Yeah. No, I think. It, uh, adaptation right now by the market is clearly, you know, there's a lot of wheels turning, right? What do we do in this new environment? And I think uh, people are realizing that the, the old methods might not work in, in the new world, right? Um, so, so Mike, have you kind of seen similar things? You know, uh, how about on the enablement side? Have you had any hiring woes or, or what's, what's your experience?
2: yeah I, th- I think it as we look across so so part of my job is to make sure I'm sort of keeping my finger on the pulse of like what a lot of smart companies out there in our space are researching and and observing in terms of their trends and their reporting and so a lot of the sales tech companies that we either have partnerships with or out there doing a lot of really cool research to figure out keys to seller productivity and retention and engagement are putting out reports right now to kind of address this topic and I think you see some cool stuff lately from companies like Exactly where they're talking about the fact that like, I think the the data point that like really scared me was like 44% of sales professionals in their wide scale survey report that they're planning on leaving their current employer within the next 24 months. And then you like <laughs> dig down into some more details in that report and you see like the average cost to replace a sales as rep is between 150 and 200% of their OTE yeah. uh, in a given year. And then you also see like, the average time to replace an open role is 6.2 months, which like validates Jen's point. And that's just, and that's on a small scale, right? Like we're, we're a mid-sized company. We've got two open roles. Anecdotally, like we've got a very large company that we worked with um, who we're speaking to end of September. And they told us they had over 260 open account executive roles across their global team, 260. And like, this is a company that, Right. Like typically has like maybe between like 50 and 150 at any given point in time, but like 3x that like in this environment, that's a, that's an expensive proposition. So now that's a, that's a huge organization always hiring, but that's, that's, that's a big issue. And I think that's represented a lot of the large enterprise companies we work with right now.
3: Yeah, and 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 that's what that we're hearing too. And but like you're saying, it's relative, right? Two on a smaller team, but in the enterprise space, that's a big hit, right? That can mean X amount of net new or legacy revenue, depending on if they're managing a book or they're driving, uh, you know, acquisition type dollars. So it's a real impact, and it makes it more difficult for the folks that are there, right? And you're thinking about retaining talent and meeting goals. Well, it just complicates things further, right? And I think that those numbers you said, Mike, were pretty daunting, right? Just the sheer cost and, and how does that math end up working, right? Um, and we'll talk about the retaining side in a moment. But So Jen, getting back to your uh, initial points, you talked about this supply, right? I think that there are a lot of jobs out there and you know, people with experience um, are being sought after and, and targeted aggressively, which you know is exciting in, in many respects for folks that, that fit that bill. Um, is that really the, the 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 long and short of it? That there's just a lot of jobs, or you know, we're hearing also people are leaving the job market or trying to do new things with their lives. Are people leaving sales? Is it a supply thing, a demand thing, in your opinion, or a combination of the two?
0: That's a fantastic question. I think it's probably a combination of the two, right? Yeah. I think one of the things that I like the two words I've seen more on LinkedIn probably in the last few months than I've ever seen before are side hustle. So even people that are in um current sales roles are thinking about how do i get out and what can i do to start doing that and you know i think it just personally as a seller if i think about if i were to ever leave this organization right i would be very very dead set on a set number of things that would just be non-negotiable like i would never go and work right. for a company that wasn't serious about developing their people i would never go and work for a company that didn't have a diverse population i would never go and work for a company that wasn't super clear in its purpose and mission versus before i think there was this always age old like notion that sellers will just go to the highest bidder i think that's really really changed i think we've all come to appreciate and maybe it's covid maybe it's something else but like the work life balance matters like how much i am treated as an individual as versus just like one of many these things matter to us more as sellers and i think right. we're just a little bit pickier about where we choose to put you know our our livelihoods
3: yeah I think there's, listen, some of that's coming from the circumstances of the world. I think some of it's coming from, you know, uh, also the generations that are now coming into the sales workforce, yeah. right? This is more important to millennials and Gen Z than it may have been to uh, previous generations, right? A more holistic day-to-day versus the money or another checkbox item um, being the, the key driving force. Mike, you talked a lot about keeping in touch with those trends Uh, you mentioned exactly and just, you know, companies that are being innovative in in ways that you want to stay on top of and out in front of. What are companies saying about this supply demand thing in in the workforce right now
1: for sales?
2: I think they're they're forced to look at it through a few different lenses at this point. Like, I think historically, I mean, if I were to ask you, Mike, like, what do you think the number one driver of sales rep retention is? Uh,
3: I think you need to have an opportunity to be successful and you need to not, you need to like the person you work for.
2: Well, like you're ahead of the curve because like the, the answer (laughs) isn't always has been compensation, (laughs) but, but like to the degree that we can't control compensation, because we can't all, it's all in many cases, it's out of your control. You got to be a benchmark in terms of compensation. That'll always be the number one thing. Like sales professionals want to get paid. It's the thing that allows them to get paid is what you have to ultimately look at. And you kind of alluded to it. Number two on that list is, career development so behind compensation just being at benchmark having the opportunity to make a lot of money and to make a living by doing well in your job underpinning that is the organization providing the support necessary to allow you to do your job in the in 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 the here and now but then also giving you visibility into a, a development path in your organization right the degree to which sellers feel like they're supported in their growth and development and see some future progression um so for sure ensure your comp plans are in line with benchmark but then think about um the day-to-day support you're providing for yourselves to be successful today are you giving them the coaching that they need are you enabling your managers to provide that coaching on your behalf as a senior leader in an organization in the day-to-day um are you providing really good solid and insightful, centrally created content and collateral and pitch decks that they can then take and tailor for individual conversations? And are you giving them the plays to run using that content, giving them the guidance they need to know when to use what and how to deliver it? If you're not giving them that from a central sort of management and leadership perspective, like they're going to feel unsupported. And what we actually found in some recent reaches is like a, a rep who reports they're feeling some degree of sort of lack of support in that organization is more than twice as likely to be looking for another job elsewhere so it's that support that drives performance but it's also the long run thinking about they have a line of sight into what they're going to do next not everybody wants to be an individual contributor forever right is it very clear how they might make their way into sort of the management track or outside of the sales organization into another role if that's if that's their desired path giving them those options and giving them a line of sight into progression is important.
3: Yeah. Good point. It's a multifaceted problem, right? Or not problem, but a day-to-day responsibility, right? Of an organization to provide those things to a sales professional, whether they're, you know, entry level or in the, the, the types of roles that, that Jen is managing now. So now it's talking about things that have changed. Some of that is, you know, the whole work experience, right? Remote, hybrid, in-office, you know, this has been covered quite a bit, so I don't want to dive into it too, too far. But I guess I'd ask the question, do you guys believe that the new norm for somebody seeking uh, employment in sales or alternate employment is a hybrid or remote? Or do we see, you know, do we think that sales professionals are going to stick to, you know, having some level of attachment or interest in the in-office experience long-term?
0: I'll speak personally. Like, what I hope we never go back to is the mandate of you have to be here, right? I think one of the things that we as sellers cannot stand is when we're babysat. So if you don't trust us, we probably shouldn't be working at the organization, right? And this notion that you have to be there so we can see how many dials you're making and how many emails you're sending, I think is just like something that we should completely dispose of. But I will say, you know, I've been remote well before probably since 2014. I've I've always personally enjoyed remote because I can focus better and I just like the work-life balance. Um but as I mentioned when we were in the office yesterday for training, there's nothing that can replace that feeling of being among your team and learning together. And so I think, it, it, I think where I lean more towards is hybrid skewing towards if someone feels like they can be more productive at home, let them work where they feel like they can do their best work, but find opportunities across the year to bring people together, remind them of the greater purpose, like help them with the things that Mike were talking about, the hurdles that they face in their job, because that energy does mean something, I believe. Yep.
2: Oh, I then, agree with that. Mike, go ahead. Sorry. Jen said exactly what I was going to say. I was going to draw on this experience we had yesterday and just like sitting in that room and observing like the the light bulb went on and exactly to Jen's point, like I need to get my work done in the day to day. So whatever way I can do that most efficiently and effectively, and also be able to balance the rest of my life and take care of my family and avoiding having to commute every single day for no reason, <laughs> like <laughs> right? that's going to be important in the day to day. But you've yep. got to have a recurring cadence of sort of in-person gatherings and interactions for your team to be reminded that there's part of something bigger. And yep. I do think that as we move along here, that actually becomes increasingly important in terms of the employee value proposition that sellers are signing up um, for when they're moving companies or when they're deciding whether to stay with a the company. They're going to want to have that uh, yep. periodically, but they're also going to want to have the flexibility to get what they need to get done. You know, eighty percent of the time.
3: Yeah. I agree from from Jen's points around, you know, not being this overbearing micromanaging organization. I think that that's going to have to be a thing of the past, right? Although a certain level of trust is what I think leaders would love to have. And, you know, uh, sales professionals really would love to have uh, shown to them, right? And uh, if you can do that and still have uh, success... I think it's really the ticket moving forward. Let me ask you one kind of quick question um, that, that's very specific about this. When we think about the hybrid in-office or remote scenarios, should there be a different approach for entry-level sales versus the say, exe- you know, the enterprise level that you know Jen's working with? You know, I'm thinking sales development. Right. This is what's on a lot of sales leaders' minds. Often, it's the top of funnel. It is you know the driver of a lot of success, depending on what channels you're getting your pipe from. And, you know, are they as easy to ramp up if they're in a completely remote or hybrid environment? Thoughts, Mike?
2: Such a tough question. So my first, my first job was sales development rep uh, several years ago. And I've been thinking about this in this environment across the last two years. And I think about it because for a specific reason. Our team, our our sales development team has been incredibly resilient and just super professional. And it's like something that you would say, first year out of college, first job, going right into a remote working environment and not being in sort of like the bullpen every day <laughs> like right. with your peers, no. with your team, with your manager, learning the ropes and feeding off that energy. I wouldn't have been able to do that, you know. When I was an entry level SDR, I tend to agree. On. I don't. I just don't think I would have been able. To, I I needed it. What I think I've seen is that like they've had tremendous success internally, and I respect the hell out of them for it. And I I have to just wonder if some of the resources, the tools, and just like uh, forward planning uh, for managers and leadership teams to enable that, but then also give them the opportunities as we just described to come together and realize they are part of a team and they need to hold each other accountable and they need to be accountable for the work they're producing. Like there's a balance there. Um, yeah. but it's super tricky when you're talking about first job out of college, like how do we teach this, uh, sort of professional environment that they need to work in in a hybrid environment. I don't have the, the best answer to that.
0: Yeah. I was just gonna say like when we, when COVID hit, our, our SDR team was always 100% in the office, right? And I think they were the most affected by having to work from home because there is that camaraderie. There is that energy you get when you're all doing the same job, you're getting those, you're there for each other. Like there's something to that. But I do wonder if that's our own status quo bias, right? Because it's sure, how sure. we all grew up and it's our normal versus if I'm graduating college this year and I'm working and in, walking into my first job as an SDR. I don't have that comparison point, right? So it it may be completely normal for me to do what I think our SDRs have done a phenomenal job doing of just figuring it out. And the other thing I'll say is I've always hated the limitations it places on having to focus your recruiting on people who can afford to move to your location or people that are already in your location. And so I love the, like, I'm a big proponent of, hey, if you're willing to do the job and you're capable and you're someone that we would want to extend an offer to, I, don't, I can't, I don't care where you sit, but I think Mike's right. We've got to find ways to make them feel part of a broader team. Cause I do think that sense of purpose is important, but I I'm, I'm all for saying like, you know, work out of your basement for all I care, as long as yeah. we're giving you what you need in terms of your development and your support.
3: Yeah. I listen, I think there's a lot there to unpack and I, I like bo- both of your points. I, I think it's going to take a strategy, right, with the, uh, you know, we'll call it earlier stage or, you know, shorter tenured sales pros. Um, And a lot of that ends up being sales development. But I think it's doable. And I think ultimately, it's where it's going. But I think people are struggling on how to get there. And and I'll include myself in that, right? So it's tricky. Let let me ask uh, you this, and I'll start with uh, Jen on this one. So knowing that, okay, you know, earlier stage sales professionals Uh, May have to adapt to in a remote environment, not have that communal in-office experience where they're able to learn best practices, you know, build off the excitement and energy of their peers. Are there new characteristics we need to look for as we're interviewing or um, we'll call them personality traits or, you know, examples of resilience or whatever it might be, you know, do we need to add to our checklist of things we're looking for, for early stage sales professionals, if we know remote's the the end game?
0: Such a great question. I I think for me personally, um, when I'm looking for someone, I'm looking for someone who has grit and tenacity and this really curious mindset of, I may not know how to figure something out, but I'm gonna try my best to figure, it. and I'll show you how I got there, and then help me figure out where like I was off the path. To me, like I, I, I think you can teach people how to be great at sales. You can't teach that drive, that grit, that tenacity, that curiosity. Like maybe you can actually. It's probably an unfair statement, but it's a lot harder. Mm-hmm. I think that's the thing that I'm like I'm really seeking, and I think that's the rare skill, right? You can talk to a lot of people who do a great job of you know, doing a snazzy presentation or a demo or whatever you ask them to do in the interview. But I, I personally don't like people who are waiting to be fed. I like the people that are hungry and saying, like, push me. I want I want more. I want help. Like, help me figure this out. That to me is the thing I think are, to your point, like, absolutely necessary. Those are non-negotiables. As, and as organizations, we owe it to people. Like, there's a trade-off. If we're going to say it's okay to be remote we have to make sure we're not running the same plays we were when everybody isn't was in the office, because now we're in a totally different environment. We have to invest in development. We have to spend more time coaching. We have to bring people together in teams so that they, we don't lose that, that like connective net connectivity.
3: Yeah. I really like those points. And one more, before we move on to the, you know, retaining sales talent, you know, we're talking now about um, you know, the hiring and and what the the market looks like. Uh, Mike, let me ask you this, you know, because everything's different because we have this maybe it's a supply shortage maybe it's a, an excessive demand combination of the two um, what ideas might you have or may, maybe you've heard of uh you know in in your networking and you know talking to your customers that sales leaders are running in terms of plays to get creative about talent pipeline right now
2: simply put i'd say cast a wider net stop looking exclusively for you know 15 plus years 10 plus years five plus years for certain levels inside your sales organization of experience in a particular type of selling right in a particular industry vertical or in a particular market a certain level of complexity like everybody's trying to find those people right now right like so unless you can pay two three x what others are paying uh if you're one of the five to ten companies that can do that good on you but you're probably not so like Cast a wider net. And what do I mean by that? Um, Center your search on a few core competencies and capabilities. The things that Jen was mentioning, and there are all kinds of companies and and products and frameworks that can help you find the capabilities and behavioral sets that you're looking for. Uh, We at Challenger have one that's well-documented and we've been using for a decade plus to help people find anyone across any profession who would match the profile of a high potential, high performing B2B seller, but like, look for the things like the ability to deliver unique perspective, to teach perspective, to um, reframe or change the way that a business professional or a senior leader thinks about their world uh, and deliver that in compelling ways with compelling business cases and be able to facilitate thoughtful two-way dialogue. Like, Those things are not unique to experienced sales professionals. I I might consider looking at management consultants or business analysts, like folks who have high levels of professional presence and business acumen um, who are driving to an outcome in their current role outside of a sales role that don't necessarily have a number attached to them who might be interested in earning uh, sort of a disproportionate income relative to what they're doing right now, if they're willing to take on a little extra risk. So long story short, cast a wider net. I do think the management consultant profile is a really good one, but there are several others. As long as you understand what the keys to complex B2B selling are today, yep. it doesn't need to be an IC with 10 plus years of experience to find success in that role. Yeah,
3: I think that's really great. And, and I think just the, in general, cast a wider net, you know, it, it's... If the supply is not in, in line with the demand or your demand specifically, you've got to you know, broaden the supply, right? Or you've got to get very, very strategic and aggressive about how you go after those very pointed targets, right, that you have. And like you said, it's very difficult to be that much of a differentiator relative to the market unless you're one of those 10 or you know, however many companies that have that competitive advantage. Very good. Um, I loved a lot of the points there. So Jen and Mike, really great on the the hiring salespeople in the coming year. Let's pivot really quickly and talk about retaining salespeople uh, in 2022. Again, sticking with the notion that the landscapes change, people are looking for different things, um, but sales is sales, right? And and so, uh, Jen, you know, you're leading a team uh, now, and you talked about the open roles, but you have some, maybe some dream team players now, people that you really like. What are the top two things that are on your mind when you're thinking about retaining them? What are you doing? What's top of mind every day that you think, this is how I'm going to keep my team in place?
0: Yeah. So number one, by far, is their development. I am so blessed to work with a team of people that have just an incredible amount of humility and an incredible amount of drive um, to compete with themselves. Like I think our culture is a really cool one. I posted about this the other day that You know, my my team that I work with does not compete with each other, they compete with themselves. And it's a competition to always get better. And so one of the things that I just absolutely adore about working with the folks on the team is every time we come to a one-on-one, sure, there will be deal-specific stuff we talk about, but there's a specific set of skills that they've self-identified, I've aligned with them all around where they say, look, like whether it's this deal or this deal or this deal, this is a trap I commonly fall into help me not fall into it again. Right. And so for us, one of the things that's the beauty of working for an organization that is our sales model is we've identified it's four things that you've got to bring to every sales interaction. So it makes it super easy for me as a manager to say, is it teaching? Is it tension? Is it taking control? Is it tailoring? And in every different rep that I have, it's a different like set. And so one of the things that this opportunity has taught me, like coming back into the manager role, it's temporary, but just in this experience, is if I just treat everybody on my team like they have the same set of gaps, and I'm just generically saying, okay, we're all going to work on tension today, sure, I might get a little bit of lift on that. But I think treating every single person as an N of one and saying, yep. let's look at your personal development, let's look at what you want to be, let's help you figure that out, like that to me is just a non negotiable. And any manager that is too time constrained to do that, I think is, being put in a terrible position by their organization. We hear this all the time of managers juggle all these balls and they were promoted from being a seller. So they super sell or they tell, not show and all this stuff. Like I think any sales leader listening really has to have an honest conversation with themselves around, have I set my managers up to be successful and thereby setting up my sellers to be successful? And if not, we got to find a way to work coaching in. Cause I think coaching and development, going back to your question, are the two absolutely most important things to keeping people and keeping people happy and engaged. And I think the last thing I'll say is like, I've got some amazing high performers on the team. I know that there's this attitude of like, they just want to be left alone. I think that's sometimes that's true. But I think it's an assumption we often make of they're fine. I think those are the pocket of population we really need to watch out for, because if we stop paying attention to them and some other suitor comes in and starts giving them the world, right? Like, I think those are people that are really high risk of leaving. So treating them just like we treat the people that maybe are average performers and constantly finding ways to challenge them or develop them or give them opportunities so that they get what they're looking for out of the experience.
3: Yeah. I love that point. I've seen so many people make that mistake and I've made it myself, right? Thinking that the top performers, because they tell you they're set and they're doing, doing well and things are good, um, sometimes they don't even know what they want, right? Great. And I think uh, that's all of us at, at separate, you know, different times. So really good points there. Um, You know, one of the things that I'm seeing, and I think is really difficult, let's go back to the, you know, we'll call it sales development, sales profile, right? The early tenured, um, you know, uh, uh, pipeline generators, top of funnel workers that are so integral in the success of many sales organizations, but they're also come with their own kind of nuanced needs from a coaching perspective, management, we don't necessarily need to get into that so much as but many sales development team members are antsy to move up right they're antsy to move up and that's understandable sales dev is a tough job and they want to become an ae or something else a lot of times their their desired time that it would take to get to ae or another role is shorter than the reality or what an organization can support so in situations like that especially at the sdr level mike how do we retain and keep SDRs engaged so that you don't have them moving on before they have the chance to move up?
2: Yeah. It's a delicate balance, right? Like because yeah. they are in a role to do a certain job and that is again over generalizing here but like generating demand, generating leads, creating opportunities or at least getting initial conversations on the books. But you've got to balance that with their desire to try the things that are available to them or that will be required of them in that next role that they're aspiring to be in. Um, There's a lot of talk lately, I think, around like sales development being a sort of a destination, like a career for many people. And I think in some organizations, some industries, categories like that actually could be a thing. I think in most organizations, it's still now the place to learn how to sell professionally and move into something. So I go, I go back to this idea of like visibility into next steps as being critically important, but that fine line, that balance there is, as I mentioned, giving them the support they need to be successful in the job they're doing today, not letting them get too far ahead in terms of preparing for that future. Cause unless you do certain things and see a certain level of success in that SDR role, you're not going to be prepared for that future state. So like, how do you give them the opportunities to start to step on some of the activities that they're going to be doing? Allowing them to take initial calls or discovery calls, allowing them to play a role in a demo before they're in the role of actually owning those types of interactions and those jobs across the cycle. Good way for them to get into it, but only if they're like rocking it in terms of the primary job, right? Like if they need help there, great. Now, if you start to surface the fact that like, the IC track just isn't the path for them and they're expressing interest in other places. One thing about where I used to work when I was in the SDR role is like, there were options open to me and I was given opportunity to sort of test some of those things out in terms of what I'd be doing or along those paths and it allowed me right. to choose one and work towards it. So I would say for employers out there, for managers, for leaders, give yeah. line of sight into the various different options, but also make sure that you're giving them what they need to succeed in, in the job that they're in today.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Really good points, and, and I really like, and I and I think we've found valuable the um, giving them the ability to start some of the responsibilities and tactics of the next role, right? Because not only is it good for them, right, and it keeps them engaged and eyes on what's next, as you mentioned. I also think that it's in a few instances it's been a good um, way for someone to find out that they might not have wanted what they thought they wanted. Right, they thought AE was next for me because that's the logical next step. That you know, you know, maybe they heard or thought, you know, which is fair. They didn't know what they didn't know, and then they get into running a demo or doing some other um, aspect of the the later stage of the sale, and it's not nearly as attractive as they thought it was going to be. Right, so um, yeah. a lot of value there.
0: I think one thing I'll add too is if you have a high number of SDRs that are just desperate to get out of the role, it probably begs the question, like what is the role that you've asked them to do? Is this just like beat oh, you over head. the head? What's your activity level? How many dials did you make? Of course, everyone's going to want to get out of that. Like I think about the SDRs in our team. They are some of the most thoughtful, curious, like they behave like AEs. They do calls with individual contributors and they're seeking out and trying to understand the organization. And I think it to Mike's point and to your point, it, it challenges them. So it's not such a role of like, how fast can I get out of it? they're like their own development they're learning how to be a sales rep with the safety of being an SDR and i think that's an important thing for leaders to consider is what kind of culture and and um situation are you putting SDRs in yeah.
2: Opportun- opportunities yeah. to succeed and that reinforces some of the momentum that might have to to carry them
1: into that actual yep. yeah
3: Yep. Yeah. And it just can't be a horror show role, right? I love that. <laughs> you know, you know, be introspective about what you're asking them to do. I think that's a really good point. So looking at the job opening scenario and the offers and the recruitability of top talent in this market, how should sales leaders Address that reality? Should they address it openly with their team members, right? You know, we all know that we have team members that is probably being addressed by recruiters or smart recruiters, right? If they are going after them, um, probably frequently. And, you know, there might be scenarios where we think that they're very happy or maybe we worry there's a morale slippage. Is there any scenario where we have open, honest discussions about? The market, and just put it all out on the table and talk to our team members, or do we kind of act like it doesn't exist? Which, which would be the preferred road? I mean,
0: if we shut our eyes and pretend it doesn't happen, doesn't mean it doesn't happen, right? Like, I think this is going back to what I said before. I think one of the things I've personally enjoyed is there seems to be a greater level of transparency from leadership. I'm, I'm hearing that not only from our teams, but like from other teams I'm talking to, where we're treating salespeople like adults instead of like children, right? And I think you can always sense if there's companies trying to poach your talent, like there's just going to be specific people that are out there hunting. And I think if you are not openly discussing it and showing the team that you have a vested interest in making this a destination they want to stay at, how can you ever do anything to solve for it? Right? Like if you don't have that two-way dialogue going, like, again, I, I feel very lucky because I work for an organization that, you know, Mike creates almost all of our content and collateral and like even some of our products. And it's like, I I could not imagine leaving that because I'm like, I know what the situation is like in a lot of other right. companies, but let's say I didn't work for that. If no one ever asked me, how do I make your job a place you want to stay more? It would be so incredibly easy for me to leave because I would yep. say like, even if I don't know, I know what the experience is here. No one's asking me how we can make it better. So it doesn't seem like they care. So I think we have to be transparent. We have to stop this like, you know parent child attitude towards leadership and sellers and just treat people more as equals
2: yeah i think like I think- the 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 management handbook for years has always said like what you really want is your direct report who's feeling like they want to look elsewhere to come to their manager and have that conversation and so that they're where- how realistic is that, right? Like, it's that it's just it plays out a lot. You're it's right. not it's not human nature to like reveal <laughs> your cards when you're gainfully employed and like concern the leadership team. <laughs> yeah. But at the same time, like, I think I think what's really important to consider here is like this is new territory for sellers who have more options to move around than ever before. It's also new territory for leadership teams and execs. They've never been through this. They've never seen an environment like this from a talent supply demand perspective. They need to be open to new ideas and easier said than done, but like, you won't get your people coming to your managers to let them know that they're unhappy and that they're looking elsewhere proactively with six month lead time until you build a culture of support and trust. And just this environment that Jen's describing around like, look, I, I, I trust that I can have this conversation with my manager and we can get to a productive outcome, whether that is remaining in-house or whether that's them helping me find the next best step outside of the organization. Very few organizations have mastered that, but I think more and more will need to as we move
1: yeah.
3: forward. I think that's really good points there. And you know, thinking about having to change, right? Organizations having to address the new norm and pivot. You know, are there any types of incentives that you think are going to be more important in the future? We did talk about the the hybrid or or flexibility remote uh, uh, in office. Are there any others that come to mind, Mike, about, you know, what we can do beyond money, right? Compensation being the, you know, historically and will always be important thing. What above and beyond that is going to be uh, in, in coming into play in the future?
2: I, I just go back to the two things that I think the data is telling us from many different angles right now. And that is number one, the degree to which you feel supported in your day to day. And that is not just the right tools, right? It's also like, the right frameworks for your manager to have, to enable productive, tactical conversations and helping you through your day-to-day. The degree to which you feel like, uh, to Jen's point, and thank you, Jen, but like that you've got people centrally who are creating content that enables you to be your best self in a sales role and have the most compelling conversations possible. So it's that day-to-day support in the moment for the job you're doing right now. And then I go back to the other point around, trying to very clearly define paths or uh you know imply that there are doors that are going to be open to you one two three five years down the line uh should you continue on this trajectory the worst thing in the world i think unfortunately for many organizations is the future is like a little bit of a black box and it's just like hey just do really well in your job right now and there could be some opportunity at the end of the tunnel in various different places None of that's guaranteed, but if you give people visibility into what's possible and yep. clear sort of steps to take to get there, I think that's actually really important beyond just overall compensation
3: right now. Yeah, I think so too. Uh, Jen, any comments on that? You know, you're leading the team right now. You know, are you hearing that, you know, we've outside of what we've talked about so far and, you know, some of the core takeaways uh, around what Mike had just outlined um, and we'll sum up towards the end? Are there any incentives that you're hearing being more prominently discussed or desired by your team or out in the the marketplace um, with people you interact with?
0: I wouldn't say like for me. I don't know if it's so much about incentives because I think okay. it's one of those things where it's like it's commoditized, right? Like it's not going to be that different company to company. The companies who can afford to just overpay are always right. gonna there. If it's one percent higher or lower, like I don't know that it makes a huge difference. I would say I agree with everything Mike said, and I think the focal point. That I think a lot of leaders fail to appreciate is we spend a lot of time thinking about like reducing customer effort. I and mean, we have a part of our business, the effortless experience that talks all about that, right? For service leaders. But I think very few organizations actually put themselves in the shoes of the seller and think about seller effort. So if I love what I sell and I have to come in every day and make all my own decks and create my own pit positioning and you know, do all of this manual work when there's sales tech, tech enablement, that's going to drive me nuts. And that's something where, and I think there's a lot of stuff that you're seeing now from different organizations where they're like stack ranking companies based on the resources available to their sellers. I think that's going to start to become more important because if you make it so hard to do my job, I'm naturally just going to go where it's easier.
3: Oh, I think that's a really good point, right? Making it easier for the customer that's talked about all the time and you know how often, and I'm sure some are, but it's not enough that people are thinking how to make it easier for sales. Really, really great conversation today, Jen, Mike. Uh, I thought, you know, talking about hiring and retaining some really good points from you both, and I think unique perspectives that the audience is really going to love. So I want to thank you both again uh, for joining.
0: Thank you so much. Thanks for having us. Yeah, really
3: fun. yeah. yeah I, I've had a lot of fun too. I think if I'm thinking about key takeaways, listen, we know that hiring is tough right now and that trend is going to continue. So you've got to adapt. And if I'm listening or you're listening to Jen and Mike, this entire conversation, the takeaway is you need to be showing your team support, development, trust, and a path forward. If you do those things well, you are probably going to eliminate a lot of the other problems that would arise if you were not. So get on those, be introspective, think about whether you're doing this with your organization, are you empowering your teams, your team leaders, um, to have a culture around these key items in the day-to-day experience of a sales professional. And listen, things are going to continue to change too, so
1: buckle up, I think, would be the other takeaway. Jen and Mike. Thanks again for a great conversation today about building your sales teams in 2022. We'll be back in the new year with more episodes about sales and marketing best practices and how to lead your organizations to success.
0: Talk of the Trade is hosted by Mimeo, the
1: better way to print. Find out more at www.mimeo.com.